Good morning. Kids, this morning, got a really easy question, all right? Starting off with a nice slow pitch right down the middle. What can you tell me about Jesus? Anything at all? Yes, over here. He was perfect. He was unexpected. Yeah, yeah. Who else? Is that a hand right here? Yes. He was God. Awesome. What else? Anything about his life you can tell me? What did he do? Get at heart? Yeah. Carpenter. Okay, yes. Healed people. Yes. Died for us. There we go. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Okay, so we know a little bit about Jesus here. Here's the next question. What can you tell me about the Holy Spirit? Yes, over here. Perfect. Excellent. Nobody really knows it. Yes, except for your sister. Say again. Always with us. Yes. Okay. Came to us on the day of Pentecost. Someone was listening to Ford just now. That's awesome. Great. Yes. Making my point for me, which is always so wonderful. Nobody really knows a lot about the Holy Spirit. We can talk about Jesus. We can talk sometimes about the Father. But when it comes to the Holy Spirit, we all just kind of shrug. So kids, we're going to be talking about the Holy Spirit in today's sermon, particularly in the second half. And what I'd want you to listen for are three key words that are going to describe the role the Holy Spirit plays in our life. So be listening for three P words. Um, Words that start with P that will help us as we understand who the Holy Spirit is and what the Holy Spirit does for us. Well, church, some of you might be wondering why in the world we are hearing about the Tower of Babel on Pentecost. Isn't today supposed to be about the Holy Spirit? And those familiar with the lectionary know that these two passages, Acts 2 and Genesis 11, are often put together on Pentecost. Christians throughout history have seen connections between these two stories. And so this morning, I wanted to explore that connection to see what it teaches us about the Holy Spirit. And what we find is when we contrast the Tower of Babel with the Holy Spirit, what we get is the kind of before and after. It's kind of like a toothpaste commercial, except instead of whiter teeth, we're talking about the total transformation of the human heart. So not really at all like a toothpaste commercial. Uh, Metaphors. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. Uh, So on one side, before, we have the spirit of Babel. And on the other side, after, we have the work of the Holy Spirit. So let's first talk about the spirit of Babel. To truly understand the spirit of Babel, we have to answer the question, what is going on in this passage? So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Genesis chapter 11. We're going to spend some time there. 
And as you're doing that, going to Genesis chapter 11, um, I should acknowledge that uh, there's, there's some strangeness in this story. Uh, I remember getting uh, to this part of Genesis in a Hebrew Bible class at my public secular university, and people really did not like it. People felt like God was being vindictive and cruel. I mean, for the modern reader, we have lots of big cities. We have lots of, t- of tall towers. Abigail was in Chicago this week. Should I have been worried about her coming back speaking another language? What's wrong with New York City? Besides, of course, the Yankees. <laughs> Sorry, Jim. What is going on in this passage? And to answer that, we're going to have to look at verses 1 through 4. And there we're going to find the motive and the means of this construction project. So read with me verses 1 through 4 of chapter 11. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So let's start with motive. What do they want to accomplish? We see this in verse 4 specifically. They wanted a city with a tower that reaches the heavens. Many scholars associate this tower with a ziggurat, a pyramid-shaped building that was popular in ancient Babylonian architecture. And what's important to recognize about a ziggurat, if that's what this truly was, is that they often carried religious connotations. It was common for a temple to be built at the top of the tower, representing the dwelling place of the gods. Hence why it was important here in this passage for the tower to reach into the heavens. But if this was a religious tower, whose name would be emblazoned on the gate? Who would be worshipped at its peak? What does the text say? It says, let us make a name for ourselves. So they set out to make a monument as an act of self-worship, lifting up and proclaiming the greatness of their own name. The spirit of Babel begins with the worship of self, what we often call pride. But as is often the case with pride, its roots aren't found in some overestimation of human ability. The root of their pride was found in fear. Look again at verse 4. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. It was about safety, security. The maintaining of a kind of proto-empire. They, they, they grounded their hope of protection on their ability to build a city and a tower. With the tower would come greater power, prestige, intimidation. This act of self-glorification would lead, others, would lead to others glorifying them. And in that worship, they would find themselves secure. As an aside, this is really insightful for us when we think about our own pride. When we dig underneath it, all we often find is insecurities. And those insecurities aren't bad in and of themselves. They're often perfectly normal human limitations. But they're meant to point us to Jesus. 
not to the pursuit of accomplishments or power. So what was their motive? To make a name for themselves, to create an environment where others would worship them, to be in awe of them, and most likely to even fear them. And they did this because they themselves were afraid. But I also said we need to talk about the means. So what were their means? We see this in verse 3, which speaks of the bricks that they're going to burn and burn thoroughly. First, we have an example here of ancient technology. It may seem strange for us to call bricks and mortar technology, but that's exactly what it was at this time. Their prideful vision of the Tower of Babel was fed and nourished by the technology they already had at their disposal. This is always the case with technology. Having the ability to make bricks is obviously not an evil. It's an extension of our role as image bearers of God to make and create things. But what technology can do is make the desires of our heart more accessible. The internet is the most obvious example for us today of this. In an instant, I can bring up on my screen pretty much anything that I might desire. The question becomes, what do I desire? What do the people at Babel desire? First and foremost, it was to make a name for themselves. And so the technology became the means of reaching that goal. But some scholars take this one step further. There's one other major reference to bricks and brick making in the Old Testament. Can you remember where it is? The first, or the early chapters of Exodus are loaded with bricks and brick making language. The language of bricks and brick making is a primary description of the enslaved Israelites, so much so that there is an association of brick making with slavery in the early books of the Old Testament. And it makes sense that the earliest hearers of Genesis would have made that connection. How did the ancient civilizations build big buildings? Often on the backs of slaves. So in their desire to make a name for themselves, to make themselves great, they stepped on the backs of others to get there. Power makes injustice justifiable. Fear makes us cut ethical corners. In their pride and hope to lift themselves up, they cast others down. This is the means and the motive of Babel. And the irony is that the story ends with the very thing they were afraid of. God comes down to view their project because their tower could never reach him to begin with. And his response is very telling. He breaks up the seat of their power. He confuses their language because nothing they will do in order that nothing because, excuse me, because nothing they will plan to do will be beyond them. He was concerned about their ability to do what their hearts desired. And over and over again, a common theme in the Old Testament is how bad a thing it is for the human heart to do whatever it wants, whenever it wants. We're meant to be guided by a loving father. We're meant to have limits. And so to protect them from themselves, to reestablish justice, God scatters the people in the tower, the symbol of their pride, is left in ruins. He disperses them across the world, giving them new languages so they cannot come to that seat of power anymore. 
So what does our before picture look like? Left to our own devices, we can take our fears, our insecurities, and seek to compensate for them, numb them, eradicate them through prideful acts, self-centered, and often unjust. This is why power, any kind of human power, is dangerous for us. Because we have the spirit of Babel. And what is that spirit? It is the worship and lifting up of ourselves by any means necessary. It is the fallen human heart's response to a fallen world. Accumulate wealth, power, and prestige so that I might be safe. Don't account for the goodness or the justice of God. Just build until I'm looking down on everyone else. It's not a pretty picture. But remember, this is just the before. God does not leave us in this state. His judgment of Babel points forward to his redemption of the world. Christ is risen. Christ is ascended. The Holy Spirit has come. Let's turn our attention now to Acts 2. Just before our reading this morning, Luke covers some of Jesus' last words to his disciples before his ascension. And Jesus says this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the farthest parts of the earth. This is what we have described for us in chapter 2. The disciples receiving the power of the Holy Spirit. But this power isn't like the power we see at Babel. It doesn't become a means to deal with our insecurities. It doesn't give the disciples a chance to make a name for themselves. Because this power has a different focus and a different goal. So to help us explore what that power of the Holy Spirit does in this chapter, we're going to be talking about three keywords. Each of these corresponds to an action of the Holy Spirit um, that he takes in this passage and in our lives. And the three words are presence, proclamation, and penitence. So first, let's talk about presence. Look with me at Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came... From heaven, a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. Two images are given to us to describe the arrival of the Holy Spirit. The first is a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and the second is the divided tongues of fire resting on each of them. Both of these images are used frequently in the Old Testament to communicate the holy presence of God. Think about Moses on Mount Sinai and all the nation of Israel saw a great fire on the top of the mountain. Think about Elijah who heard a strong wind before the still small voice. The Holy Spirit communicates God's presence to us. Our hearts become many Mount Sinai's where a holy God communes and engages with his creation. When Jesus said, I'll be with you always before his ascension, what happens next is the coming of the Holy Spirit as the fulfillment of that promise. Now, the Holy Spirit is distinct from Jesus being the third person of the Trinity, but is also united with Jesus being one God. If that doesn't make sense and you're wanting more clarity on the Holy Trinity, I would say join the club. The Trinity is a great mystery, but it is one that will captivate us for all eternity. The simplicity of God as one and the community of God as three. But that eternity of complete captivation with God begins now with the work of the Holy Spirit. Church, God is truly present with you 
and in you. His holiness rests within your soul. And as we embrace that reality and rely on the Spirit, we can grow to be people who no longer feel the need to make a name for ourselves. We can step away from the fear and the insecurities that drove the people of Babel to build. Think about what the disciples are about to do after this moment with the Holy Spirit. Think of Stephen before he was stoned, or Peter in prison, or Paul and Silas in prison, or any other example of persecution, rejection, or discouragement. Any number of those experiences could have led Peter to say, listen, maybe we need to focus on accumulating some power. Getting the word out there that we aren't going to be messed with anymore. But this experience and the experience of walking with Jesus towards his own sacrifice was more powerful than that, more encouraging than that. The Holy Spirit is more potent than fear because by the Holy Spirit, through the work of Jesus, we encounter the Holy of Holies and we come into the presence of our good Father. God's presence leads to proclamation. Pentecost is so named because it's 50 days after the Feast of First Fruits, which comes during Passover, and is also known in Leviticus as the Feast of Weeks. And like Passover, all, uh, able-bodied Jewish men were required to travel to Jerusalem for the Feast of Weeks. And so this explains why we have faithful men speaking multiple languages in Jerusalem at this time. One author I read on this made the point that we cannot hear the word without language. So the divisions that we see at Babel limited the power of sinful humankind, but it also created divisions of understanding. God's created order, meant to be unified in love and worship him, was fractured. So at Babel, God came down in judgment to divide the language. At Pentecost, God came down in mercy to unify his people again. Peter's sermon shows that this isn't just done through language, however. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit also brings signs and wonders. But these signs and wonders are all pointed towards the same thing, the name of Jesus. One of the Holy Spirit's primary roles through Scripture is to lift up and proclaim the name of Jesus. It's what Peter does in his sermon and the miracles we see that follow. It's what Paul does on his missionary journeys through his epistles. It's what Stephen and the other deacons do when they begin to feed the poor and care for the widowed and orphaned. The power of the Holy Spirit is about making Jesus' name great. This temptation exists all around us. The American dream says, if I obtain a certain amount of power, money, and accomplishment, then I will be happy, whole, and safe. Our identities are too important things to place in such flimsy attempts at living. And I'll say, churches can fall into these traps as well. We have been in a period of growth here at Redeemer, and praise God for that growth. But it would be such a shame if we began to place pride in our congregation and not in the God whom we worship. It would be such a shame if our proclamation of the kingdom of God was subtly transformed into an advertisement for a church community. How do we avoid that trap? We rely on the Holy Spirit to keep our eyes on Christ. As God gives growth to this church, as power and influence and potential expand, we direct all those resources to lifting up Jesus. And the Holy Spirit will lead us in that work. So we have the presence of God, we have the proclamation of the name of Jesus, and finally we have penitence. Peter's sermon, the first part of which we heard today, ends with people being pierced to the heart. When they ask what to do next, Peter says, repent. The Holy Spirit leads us into that initial repentance. And then again and again throughout our life, as we find ourselves falling back 
into the spirit of Babel, the Holy Spirit comes again to say, repent, return to Jesus. Those, those early converts were pierced to the heart because the Holy Spirit communicated the beauty of Christ to them. They saw the lack in their own lives, I'm sure. They saw their insecurities, but repentance is about something or someone better. Remember, Scripture says it's the kindness of God that ultimately leads us to repentance. Guilt and conviction have their place as guardrails, as reminders that we have erred and strayed from God's ways. But true true repentance is always going to be marked by the Holy Spirit because true repentance ends with a joyful and free proclamation of the goodness of God. The joy of our liturgy is that every Sunday we have a time of confession. The challenge of our liturgy is that it can be easy to simply say the words without engaging in them. Let me just say, that happens. God is still at work on your heart in those days, and it's still a good thing for you to be here, even if you're distracted. But it's far better if we can attend to our hearts during that time. We take a few moments during the prayers of the people to prepare ourselves to confess. Maybe today we can ask the Spirit if there's anything we need to repent of. Any place in our hearts where we're seeking to make a name for ourselves instead of Christ. Any insecurity that might lead us away from Jesus. Take a moment this morning and listen to the Spirit. The Spirit of Babel is alive and well in our world. But the Holy Spirit is far more powerful. Through communicating God's presence, proclaiming the name of Jesus, and leading us into repentance, we can leave behind Babel and its pride and division. I want to leave you with this thought this morning. The way we rely more on the Holy Spirit is we ask. There's a reason one of the primary prayers to the Holy Spirit that's arisen in church history is simply, come Holy Spirit, Just ask. Come, Holy Spirit, come. May that be our prayer this week. Amen.